Okay, now I can go ahead and try this. I saw the thumb five or six seconds ago. Who knows? Apparently, that we somehow ended up on uh, New Grace Facebook putting up putting the stage together. So all those things you said about them are on their Facebook page. Want you to know that. <laughs> you can. Uh, oh, wasn't any sound? Uh, you, you, they'll put some lip reading operation in place. You can leave now, Dave. While it's still time. <laughs> Here we are, June the 24th, 2018, lecture discussion number 28 on the book of Joel. I have a letter, and um, I think it is something that is required for me to read. I, I think you'll understand why I say that when you hear it. Letter to Pastor, and of course, Supper Dave. Dear Pastor and Alter Ego, Supper Dave. You'll excuse me if my note is too long, but I feel compelled to write to you. So, laugh out loud. In other words, he's uh, accusing us of being the same, and why wouldn't he? Uh, me and Supper Dave. I guess you have become a celebrity in our home. We tend to reach out to those who reach that lofty level in our lives. I remember Marcia Brady. That identifies how old this person is right off the bat. And if you know who Marcia Brady is, and some of you are smiling, you now know uh, that you went to high school together with the author, either directly or indirectly. Um, I remember Marcia Brady, and then he puts in parentheses, Brady Bunch. As if I wouldn't know. I remember Marcia Brady did a book signing at our local bookstore, and sure enough, I paid 20 bucks to get a book signed so I could say I met her next to the brunette on Gilligan's Island. She was the hottest TV vixen of my childhood. Ha ha. If you summon Supper Dave, you'll find I typically try and write a comment, Airy. That is hopefully humorous and thoughtful most weeks for the past year or so since I found your channel. Your channel has become my primary source of church and learning. Most importantly, you have made us laugh a lot. Your insights have caused me to renew a dormant passion, passion for mining the word of God. I have found that the questions unanswered far too often you proffer have caused me to search and meditate on the person of our Lord, who has often rewarded me with his presence, a gift that I can never repay you for. I truly wait each week, I, I truly wait upon each week's teaching with the greatest anticipation to continue this most important part of my life. This also helps me to focus on him. When all else seems so difficult, and this is the real person, purpose, sorry, this is the real purpose of my note here. My wife Mary is dying. Six years ago, we were given the news of cancer, hysterectomy, then a heart attack, then a mastectomy, followed by the report that it had spread and it was inoperable. Four years ago, we were told we had a 20% chance of living another 18 months. Well, that was four years ago. Four weeks ago, we were told to plan on an early Christmas, perhaps September, early September. Unknown much to you, you are my pastor, and I would so greatly appreciate it if you felt led to pray for us that we can celebrate Christmas in December. Mary loves Christmas, always has. She starts Christmas preparations in February. Since our latest news, we have been fighting depression and despair, even to, point, even to the point and writing such a letter to somebody who doesn't even know us. To be honest, I am now wondering if this letter I felt compelled to write is unseemly 
are too familiar. I'm just somebody who is part of the Internet congregation, but for some reason I would ask you to remember us in prayer, hoping it will make some kind of difference. You never know, right? Not to leave this as a cringe or a negative letter, there's a little 55-second video my shy wife let me make about a month before all this started, so you can put a face on Mary and, most importantly, hear the laugh that has brought me so much joy through the years sometimes while watching your lessons. This was her long, longest cameo video appearance of any video, and he gives us the information to see it. Thank you in advance for your attention. Love, Joe and Mary from Seattle. That's what this Internet does. I don't even know what to say. So, I thought we would take some time as a group to pray for Mary. So, let's do that. You go first. Quietly. Give you about a minute or so, and then I'll close it. Heavenly Father. Please hold Joe and Mary and their family, their children, in your hand. You do. You will. You have. You'll continue for all eternity doing so. Please bless them. Please tell them that they are loved, valued by us. We can't even begin to express it. Please get us all to September or December. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, I think the end of the age of the Gentiles is here upon us. So, Mary, just hang in there. Let's get out of here together. I hope it is in September. Wouldn't that be fascinating? It'll be a great thing when it happens. But I just wanted to share that with you for obvious reasons. Okay, see if we can keep going here. If you were one of the many that took advantage of the summer solstice week, I should inject now that we are losing daylight. As you know, officially winter is imminent. We're now experiencing the onset of cold and darkness as it creeps over the Alaskan geography, and none of us can escape. Okay, some of you have a four-wheel drive motorhome. You can escape, but most of us, overwhelmingly, the percentage of us will, in fact, succumb to the inevitable winter of Alaska, as always. So, if last week you were clinging to the end of the increasing light days and you missed the lecture number 27, and that's an excused absence, uh, if you want to know, an approved one, I'm going to validate your decision and that's what we're doing here. Summer in Alaska is so brief and so miserable 
that any time you can go away for a weekend, it's absolutely necessary to do so. I never take it personally. In fact, I respect you more for not being here. <laughs> that is how it works. <laughs> so what I'm going to do today is people say to me, I know I can take a week off because you pretty much repeat the lecture from last week word for word the week next. So. Uh, that's been going on for years. Part of that is my process to keep everybody in the boat as long as possible or on the bus, to use those uh, allegories or metaphors. But uh, I'm going to do it a little bit more uh, aggressively today. So if I could choose the prominent area or the subjects from the previous few Sundays where I've been bludgeoning you with all kinds of what I think is interesting material, you not so much. If I could choose, and I get to choose because I maintain possession of the most holy dry erase marker, the first nominated area or subject by far would be time and death. We have been with time and death now for quite some time. Thank you. Welcome back. Glad you come. You you laugh at at least 14% of all my jokes, and that's important to me. (laughs) I wish I got to film the audience occasionally. I just got to do it. Now, none of you are surprised by this time and death. As I said, we've been doing it for quite a while. And you were certain uh, that um, um, you were certain that that wouldn't be. I think most of you thought, well, that wouldn't be it. What would be really number one, if I got the pick, of course, would be the quantum Zeno effect. I have not got into this in great detail because there is a anti or a quantum anti-Zeno effect that I haven't told you about. You cannot talk about the Zeno effect without discussing the acceleration or the anti-Zeno effect. And I think that many of you were hoping that that would be today's subject. Everyone that was hoping. Oh, one. Terrific. That is fantastic. Okay, well, that, that I'm going with this then because... I think zero are interested in time and death, so we're, quantum Zeno wins one to nothing. There's also the Zeno paradox, and as fascinating as the Zeno paradox is, and it's extraordinary. It deserves to be on the list. All of this has, well, I should put it here on the list just in case somebody wants to look it up. Zeno paradox. I don't think it's really a paradox, but other people do, and we'll go ahead and accept their nomenclature, appellation. It's amazing. Make no mistake. It's on the list, belongs on the list, because the quantum Zeno effect and the anti-Zeno effect is centered on frame of observation. You have your own individualized observation reference point. That's an amazing piece of information that cannot be taken lightly. Zeno effect is centered on observation, the impact that observation has on physical reality, on particles, on superposition, collapsing wave functions into particle functions. That's uh, classic quantum physics, and I think it's critical to understand it because it is something that is exposing the mind of God, in my view. To crystallize this, if possible... Observation at its essence is consciousness. Physics has figured out that consciousness 
is interwoven in the reality to a level that it can't be extricated. Physics has long held that the material structures that you look at this, for example, beautiful, holy, blessed Lexan podium that is structurally amazing, unless you lean on it, um, that is dependent on consciousness. All physical reality is dependent on consciousness. And that's something that's plainly stated, absolutely as perfectly as it could possibly be. Duh. At Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.3. Physical reality is created by consciousness and is dependent on consciousness. That is one of the precepts, the tenets of the Bible. One of the foundations of the Bible. And physics has validated that and proved it to be true. true. One of the first to begin this process is this man, Zeno, this Greek philosopher. Zeno, therefore, becomes someone of great value. He thought carefully about the concepts which God and Christ assigns to themselves, to himself. Christ says, I am omniscience. I am omnipresence. I'm the one that installed time. I am the absolute observer. I am the creator of time. And the quantum Zeno effect and the quantum anti-Zeno effect prove it. And that's a very important piece of information for Christians, the church, to have, to possess, and to utilize. Zeno, the Zeno effect has also been applied to Schrodinger's cat. And you remember Schrodinger's cat. I brought Schrodinger's cat once here and displayed it in a little box. The kids loved it. They clamor for it. When are you bringing the cat in the box back? They tell me almost every Sunday. It's the only thing they remember. That's a, that's a powerful place for me to be. Yeah. I'm overwhelming the Sunday school class. And I, you remember, I'm sure, the superposed cat. The life state and the death state simultaneous. And there, of course, is time now put into the picture and a mechanical device and radioactive decay. Radioactive decay occurs over time. So all of that is a time-based structure, Schrodinger's cat, this release of radiation that occurs, the poison, if you will. So quite a bit of subject material is encompassed by Zeno. And it's estimated to have been conceptualized, the paradox named for him, from around, he, he, he lived, they believe, about 450 B.C. That's how long ago somebody thought about observation and the observation effect. To repeat the basics of his premise, he's, he, and we don't have all of his he, he wrote extensively. We hardly have anything that he wrote directly. We have people who summarize what he wrote. We've lost um, humanity, mankind, has lost the works of Zeno. But to repeat the basics of his premise, the singular premise, uh, premise that he is uh, known for the most, if time is infinitely divisible, then nothing moves. You remember the, that if I put everything on a deck of cards and I flashed the cards that you riffled through them, you would see motion. But what that is, is a divisibility of motion in those cards. If time is in, 
infinitely divisible, then nothing moves. That's Zeno's uh, fundamental or primary purpose, uh, I'm sorry, uh, premise. Obviously, I'm proposing that Christians have a functioning level of understanding of this debate, and I hope the reasoning is apparent. Anyway, these two are certainly on the list. Time and death being placed, in my opinion, is the most formidable and therefore the most significant of these subjects that we've covered over the last few weeks. Time and death forces consideration of belief and death. Saving faith and death, John 8:24. Let me read John 8:24 again. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe I am, you will die in your sins. I quote this verse as often. I read it as often as I can. I don't think I read it often as much as I should, but as I just throw it in every time I can because I know how important it is. When I do so, I hopefully never fail to include that the I am Stop the whole church. I have a book for you. Don't leave before I give you that book. Okay, we can go back now. Why did I stop the church for Brady? He is not my favorite niece, but good answer. Because he helps me with the, with the board and I reward him with presents. That's why. So I'm trying to get ahead of him. Not easy. <laughs> Where was I as a true professional? I hopefully that never fail to include that the I am of that verse. For if you do not believe I am, that is the absolute I am of Exodus 3.14. It's the I am of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. The absolute I am. Now the translators being... I don't know what was wrong with them. They have a tendency at John 8:24 in your Bibles to put he in italics after I am and that misleads people. They thought it was helpful. That it sends them to Isaiah more so than it does to Exodus. This is the absolute I am of Exodus 3:14. And what they did to clarify, I think it was in fact diminishing the deity of Christ. I'll have to talk to them later about it. So erase the he and capitalize that I am and write Exodus 3.14 next to John 8.24. Christ did not say, I am he. He said, I am. And he wanted his audience, us, his readers, to go to Exodus 3.14, where that is the first mention of the I am, the absolute I am. For if you do not believe I am, you will die in your sins. That's what he said as powerfully as anything that is ever in the Bible. I am the Lord. I'm sorry. I the Lord am, he says. I am the first. I am also the last. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to me. I'm sorry. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Christ is saying he is the voice for Moses at that bush. I am who I am. Jesus intended, emphasized that he is the I am. And as you know, I am is a time citation. 
why he says it. He's placing time in front of you. It's a time citation and it's also an infinity application. Time and infinity locked up inside his name, I am. He is claiming, rightfully, that he is the source of time, the author of time, the creator, the, ins- the one who installs time. He is that which is first and last. Now, you already know all of this because you didn't miss the last few weeks. But, I, like I said, I keep repeating John 8.24 because there are those who will hear it. For one, here at once, and this will be the place. And I want to make sure that as many people hear the juxtapositioning, the connectivity of John 8.24 and Exodus 3.14, and then the additional information that it is a time and an infinity reference. Because as you know, we are, I got a wonderful letter from Hi Shannon. I haven't written you back yet, but I'm, it's your letters in a proper or a prominent place. I had a wonderful letter about the diminishing of the deity of Christ. Not only is his deity being diminished, if not eradicated, an attempt to eradicate it can't be done. He's God, you can't change it. But they're attempting to eradicate his deity from the church. They're also attempting and successfully, they've overwhelmed the church by making his humanity imperfect. So not only is he no longer in the church, perfect humanity and infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omnipresent God uh, to the church of today, but they've also, as I said, destroyed his perfect humanness, which we cannot even imagine, frankly. But that is the Laodicean Church of Gen- uh, Revelation 3.16, the vomit church. We should expect it and we should actually be comforted by the fact that it's occurring. Because that means the end of the age is here. Anyway, for today, notice the positioning of believing and dying. That Christ says. Believing and dying. You must believe I am, or you will die. So believing and dying are there. Side by side, put there by God. Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is a uh, accounting. Actually, it's an imputed. It's accredited. It is a, it is a debit credit statement. He believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord and God gave him salvation. So to frame the issue perhaps more clearly, believe goes like this. It goes, believe, I am, die. There's your three pieces. Believe, I am, die. So, believing and dying, again, Christ sets them In order there. Believe I am or die in your sins. Belief then, time and infinity, death as Christ so defines death is what we're discussing. Thus the obvious question. Why is there a time restriction on belief? Because there is. There's a time. Individual allotted time. Our individual allotted time will run out. 
There is a great urgency, literally, truly. This is life and death. Real life and real death. Eternal life and eternal death. Notice also the connectivity between time and eternity. Eternity is a time-based concept. You have, take some time now in the lecture to work that out on your own. Okay, I'll intervene just a bit. Ask the beginning question of this debate here, or this discussion. The time and eternity contemplation, if you wish to think of it that way. Does time continue inside of eternity? Yes or no? Or does the eternal restoration or the eternal state, which is the eighth state, we have seven states, the seventh is the millennium, the eighth state that follows the millennium is the eternal or the restoration of all things state. Does the eternal state erase time? Yes or no? These are yes or no questions. Does it bring obsolescence to time? Will you have a watch in the eternal state? Yes or no? Simply put, will we be aware of time during the eternal state? If time remains, will, it, will its meaningfulness be reduced? If you've decided that time will remain, because why would you decide that? Will there be change, motion in the eternal state? Will things change? Will a tree grow? Will you weed your garden? Can you cut down a tree and build a building? Christ is a carpenter, as you know. I mean, would he have taken a profession that he would render useless? Being omniscient God? He's probably pretty good at carpentry, don't you think? Will there be time? Will its meaningfulness be reduced? If so, how much? So, there's your little discussion. Now back to time and death, belief in death and time. <coughs> Excuse me. A while ago I brought up Genesis 3. Hopefully some of you remember why, or knew why, or thought why, and now you remember that I did it. Here's what it says. My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. What is the obvious question? Why 120 years? Theologians have been battling over that for as long as I can remember and longer still. Man was given 120 years from the act of the, of the sons of God. The only time, oh, I'm sorry, let me put it better. Sons of God in Genesis 6-3 refers to the angelic realm, the angelic host. Angels saw the daughters of men, and he said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The angels, Jude 6, left the heavenly realm and, and took the daughters of men, Genesis 6, 2. From that act, mankind gets a hundred and twenty years. Why 120? From that moment, God imposed a time limit to the flood. In other words, there's a time limit, and after that time limit will be the flood. 120 years. He also gave them Methuselah, who dies at 969. Methuselah's name means, upon the death of Methuselah, judgment. Who wants to live next to Methuselah? 
All of us. I'd check every time he coughed, I'd go over and look and see how he's doing if I lived in that time. How you feeling? Meth? Quite the name. Meth blows my mind. I play on an old man softball team, and one of the things you do in softball, as you know, is you drink yourself to death. That seems to be the rule. And I would tell those guys, they said, you could give a shot, and they don't drink beer. They drink heavy, which is why I'm not, I don't drink at all, as you know. Because what an advantage I have playing with a bunch of old drunk people. It's, it's incredible. I, I look like Willie Mays out there. <laughs> Dated myself, but Mike Trout, I guess, would be the equivalent modern example. But I told one of them the other day, a sweet man, he just always brings alcoholic uh, structures to people that have no business taking them at all. And I said, if you gave that whiskey, that's 90 proof whiskey, to a two-year-old child, that child would die. So we can now easily determine that this is pure poison. And if you give one, give that to a child, not only will the child die, but you will be imprisoned for being an idiot, as you should be. This is a, That would be a malicious act, knowing you're going to kill a child with it. So, there are two times when alcohol is fantastically poisonous, when you're young and when you're old. If you don't think that's true, watch these guys try to play softball. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. They actually believe that it's helping them. It's, yeah, they think it relaxes them. It's fantastic. Again, I have a great advantage being around those kinds of folks. But back where I was, Methuselah, 1,600, 1,700 years from Adam. We can't be sure because we don't know how long Adam was in the garden um, and we don't know from exactly when God counts. I think the, the ejection of Adam from the garden is when he counts. But we can't be positive of that. It could be from the birth of Adam or the creation of Adam, if you will. So here's Methuselah upon his death judgment. The point is, yea, a point. Pre-flood mankind witnesses, experiences the imposition of a time limit, a clock, another one, another clock. Find all the clocks in Scripture, but this 120 is clearly a clock. He starts a clock for the angels, doesn't he? Genesis 1.16. That is the original countdown clock. And we now know that there's a 7,000-year time allotment or allowed to the great white throne judgment of the unbelieving, of the casting into the lake of fire of the angels and men. So he starts a clock from the fall of the angels. In a sense, the fall of the angels, he comes and has a physical creation. He eliminates the mineral Eden that Satan had authority over, and he installs the organic Eden that Adam has an authority over, and there a clock, the sun and the moon are established, and the, and the, uh, and the stars, if you will. And now another. Go back a second. A 7,000 year clock is started for the angelic host. Mankind hadn't been created yet. So that's sun and moons for them. And they know it. I got two groups, right? Unfallen angels and fallen angels. 
Who is the clock for? Some would say fallen. I'm going to tell you that it is for both. So what is the lesson for the unfallen? Well, they see the lake of fire. And they know that they have time. The Bible even says two people that are, I'm sorry, two persons, Satan himself and Judas, are told by God. Satan knows he has but a short time. Judas is told it's his time to go and do what he wishes to do. Anyway, there are two groups up there. One group is the, is the fallen and the other group is the unfallen. What is the lesson for each one of those groups for the imposition of this clock, the sun and the moon? So, moving on from that. Inside of this antediluvian man, A-N-T-E, pre-diluvian, pre-flood man, he is soaked in wickedness and blood. He's filled with murderous violence and he's contaminated flesh. He's given 120 years of time before the flood comes, the judgment comes. 120 years. And that, of course, results in a flood of questions. Thank you. A little, little late, but nonetheless, I accept it. Why this time constraint? Why not just blow them up now? We got a mess. They're killing each other with abandon. They're contaminated. The angels are running amok. Fallen angels. Why not just go, boom? He doesn't. He waits 120 years. And why 120 years? Who gets 120 years? The unfallen angels get another 120 years. Because what does he do to them? But why this time constraint? God declares an end is coming. He even defines the exact day. You can reckon the exact day. They would know the death of Methuselah is the exact day. Of the great flood. They would know that it's 120 years from Genesis 6-2. They could figure it out. Why did he allow them to do that? And again, why 120 years? You heard me say 120 times 50 is 6,000. So that's there's 120 jubilees given to man. Where are we on that timeline, by the way? Oh. 120 is also three forties. One thing for certain, 120 years is a divinely, divinely appointed time of waiting. And we can also, we can attach the sudden judgment of the flood to what event? Where do we attach the flood? The, the flood is directly related to what in the Bible? It's directly related to the condemnation that comes with the tribulation. Somehow there's going to be 120 years Applied to both. I have 120 years to the flood. What is the 120 year marker, if you will, for the tribulation? Do you think he has it or it's just 120 for the flood? There's not 120 for the tribulation. When the tribulation is in fact almost exactly the same in the sense of what it accomplishes. The flood is an ending. The tribulation is an ending. Where's the 120 years for the tribulation? Just asking. 
That's a, uh, something for us to search out. Let's see when we're going to search that out. Right there. So based on that notation, I would say uh, about July the 22nd. Yeah, what year? What year? What a fantastic response. You win. You win the day today. <laughs> that was impressive. Walked into that rake. The wicked were given a timeline to believe God in the pre-flood or the antediluvian uh, world. And that world, I don't, that world was completely different from our world. How many were saved when God gave them 120 years? How many chose to believe God and be saved? We often count the eight who entered the ark, and we also cite Genesis, Genesis 7, 4. Not, God only, not only gave them 120 years, but he added seven more days. And then he let it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. He keeps doing this. Were there any believers in the pre-flood world? Of course there were. How do I know that? Because God is the God of salvation. Methuselah is there. He's telling people, pay attention to me. When I die, judgment. That's my name. My father's Enoch. You see Enoch? No. Why not? There's a relationship between Methuselah's death and Enoch being taken at 365 years. So on the earth there are believers. I have uncontaminated Noah and his uncontaminated wife. How do I know both of them are uncontaminated? That was the whole point. And uncontaminated Noah is building an enormous box. So there's signs abound. And there's uncontaminated animals are delivered by God. As soon as I saw those animals being delivered, I would run over and check Methuselah's heart rate. How many people figured it out? We got 120 years. We got seven extra days. How many believers were there? And as an aside, none doubt the existence of God. No one doubts the existence of God at this time. None doubt the creation. There are no atheists here. That's going to be replicated in the tribulation. Again, there will be no atheists in the tribulation. There will be no evolutionists in the, in the tribulation. Not one. That is a absolute certainty. God will make it clear that he is God and you are not or we are not. And what he is doing and why. And what he did and why. What is the difference? Let's just take on the atheist thing. What is the difference in believing God exists and believing what God says? There is a difference. And that is the angels believe God exists. The entire pre-flood world believed God exists. Did they believe God? See, this is back to believe, I am, die. So, how many believe in Christ? How many believe God versus how many believe there is God? 
Once you've established the circumstances, the differences between the flood and now, the pre-flood and now, begin with the rest of the wise, or what I call the Genesis 6 wise. Why are they killing everybody? What's the purpose of that? There's constant, unceasing, continual evil and murder. They're killing each other every minute they can, covered in blood. Why are they doing that? What's the motive? What's to be gained by that? How does it relate to the tribulation? Keep in mind, this is a Joel study. Genesis is the flood. Joel is the tribulation. Both of these events have tremendous killing. Would you assume that the killing going on in the tribulation from whom? Who's going to, who's, who, who's going to do the most killing? The Antichrist in the tribulation. Satan's inside of him. He's killing everybody he can get near. Who's killing in the pre-flood? Is the reasons the same? Again, Genesis is the flood. Joel is the tribulation. There's this relationship that is not possible to separate. How does this relate to the tribulation? The reasonings of the killing of the Jews by the Antichrist and Satan, for example. Why does mankind seek to kill the prophets of the true God? Anyway, back to the subject at hand. God has greatly reduced the time man has to repent of his unbelief. Have you noticed that? I have noticed Personally, I have a mirror. In the pre-flood years, there was 900, approximately, generally speaking. A lifespan of 900 was relatively common. Certainly, 7-800 was real common. And that, of course, is the that of course is the saved, the believing. How about the unbelieving? Eve isn't included. How long did she live? Did she make it to the flood? Is it possible if Adam can go a thousand years, and essentially he did, counting the time he's in the garden, how long did Eve go? Fifteen hundred? Did she make it to the flood? But 990, with some exceptions. This is a general statement. 990, I think you can agree with me, I hope you can, that those are the general, as I said, parameters here. Why this substantial disparity? Why did we go from 900 down to 90? These are the whys of the flood, the whys of Genesis 6. Do you think because of the ecological um, consequences here, atmospheric differences, geological changes, environment, genetics? There can be no dispute the antediluvian earth was very much, very, very much distinct from our post-diluvian. For one, the angels are no longer, are, are not unfettered now. They're in captivity. The fallen, the heavenly host remains in heaven. They are obedient. So that alone is an amazing difference. Keep that in mind. Nonetheless, the crucial question remains physical death. Physical death is the definitive end. The decision must be made, willfully exercised, believe Christ or reject Christ. Time for this eternal choice will be withdrawn. So there again, time and death. You do not have forever to decide. If, oh, but. If time is a human consciousness event, invention, sorry, as Einstein claims it is and many others, why does God have it everywhere in his Bible? Why is he using it?
Who do you think considered it first? And we can argue when the clock begins for humanity. What I mean by that is the age of accountability. At what age, for example, is the age of accountability? We can argue over that. It's a wonderful argument. I have my position. But all of us lose our free will to believe at physical death. Does that make sense? Physical death, that time allotment, your 90 years, if you will, ends your ability to make this decision. Why? Why is this constraint, again, this restriction? Why is this so? Why is physical death the end? I'm declaring it to be. I'll prove it uh, today, I think, but I'll prove it more as the time goes by here. As you know, many sects, uh, some professing to be Christian, do not accept Hebrews 9.27 is true. They call this, uh, let me put it on the board for you, they call this second probation. Their second probation. Um, um, there is limited second probation. There is unlimited second probation. I can't spell second. What does all that mean? That means there are many people who teach you, many religious orders, if you will, many denominations that says that uh, death does not end your access to the salvation of Christ. That there is a second opportunity. And some will say that it is unlimited. It goes on for eternity. Some will say that it is limited. But I asked this question many years ago. You might remember. If you were allowed to be saved after death by God. And you are in the lake of fire for a hundred thousand years. How much time did you spend percentage-wise with respect to eternity in the lake of fire? The answer is what? Zero. Because 100,000 divided by infinity, I did that backwards, because that happens here in chalkboard or raceboard technique. 100,000 divided by infinity. Do the math. You've got a phone. Figure it out. So there's a logic issue right there. This, of course, is a discussion on the intermediate state. Is the intermediate state, that transitionary temporal state, thank you, ma'am, that transitional temporal state between your resurrection, your restoration to of your soul and, and the physical body that God will will rebuild for you, he will use the system that you already have, and so there's a recognizability, but he's also going to uh, make it a little bit more updated. How's that? Certainly new paint. I need that. But this is a question of, of the intermediate state. Is, is uh, your ability, your choice, 
if you will. I know someone don't they don't like that either. Is it fixed? Is it established? Once you're in the intermediate state, are you fixed, established, or is there still a mutability? Is it still fluid? Is it unsettled? And mostly the debate centers within the parameters outlawed, outlawed, outlined by John 8.24 and Hebrews 9.27 and 2 Corinthians 6.2. That's why I read John 8.24. <coughs> you know, if you do not believe I am, die in your sins. Hebrews 9.27, die once after this the judgment. 2 Corinthians 6.2, and in the day of salvation, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. These three passages are especially uh, powerful when they're placed together, emphasizing that the final decision is made in our time here. This very brief time that we have in this fallen world, you have to make this decision. And I think it's critically, crucially necessary to ask why that is. You need to know, in my view. I say that a lot, and you all, most of you come to me, I say, I don't need to know anything. Well, you're right. It's the difference between my wanting you to know and your needing to know. I concede. I will say that the scriptures are unified here, defined, definitive. The time is given, that's our lifespan. That is the only time given to be saved. There is no post-death or intermediate state opportunity. There is no second probation. No appeal process, in other words. Finality is, is the fact of Scripture. There's no prolongation. There's no continuances. That's what Scripture teaches. What's the question? Why? Why is that the way it is? God has decided man will be granted time to believe him, but the time allotted to choose Christ has closure, it has termination, and our physical death is the event that marks the ending of the time for each of us. Physical death does not end us. We all know that. We all survive physical death. Death is temporal. Existence is eternal. We make the mistake in our society thinking death has power. It's just a temporary Minor blip. Our existence is what is at stake here. Our destiny of our, of our existence. Death only ends the opportunity to reach for the extended hand of Jesus Christ. So again, time and death are integral. Obviously, this is intentional. A purpose of our physical death is to bring a closing to the grace mercy of Christ. Some see this as the hand of Christ being withdrawn. Others say instead it is the person who slips away, who willfully refuses to be saved. I side with the latter. As you know, God is long-suffering. In any event, this is the design. God did it this way. Why? A while back, I read Ecclesiastes. To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Uh, to everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose, a time to be born, a time to die. That is what Solomon, with the Holy Spirit inspired, inspiring him, wrote. That is how he opens Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2. Solomon, as we should expect, figured out this relationship between time and death, why God's doing it this way. 
He expressed it perfectly at Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 5. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Remember, I wanted to have a softball team called the Living Dogs. That would be cool. A living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. That's what Solomon wrote. Again, the Holy Spirit inspiring him. This is describing the decision of each one of us to choose Christ before we die. The living dog knows he's, he's still got time. The dead lion, he now knows nothing. It isn't that he ceases to exist, but his knowledge of God is gone. The living dog knows he must choose life. He must choose Christ before he dies. The dead lion died in his sins. John 8, 24. Solomon brings the entire meaning and purpose of life, of our lives, to its pinnacle, its final words, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. By fear God, he means what? Believe God. This is it. Believe God and keep his commandments, for, for this is man's all. Get this right. And then he goes on to say, because for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says that it is judgment, not death, that brings the meaning to life. God will reveal every good thing and every evil. The, the accounting, my accounting, your accounting, our accountability to our creator is eternal and irrevocable. And it must be this way. It must be so. Why it must be so, I submit, is of great value to all of us, understanding why it's this way. It is good to know that it is so. That's true. We need to know it. I'm trying to get you to know it. But it's also wise to know why it's this way. He could, could he have done it any other way? That's a trick question. No, he's omniscient. This is the only way it can be done. You must believe before you die. Why? Knowing good from evil, that's what it's about, isn't it? Back to Genesis, here we go again, huh? Don't be surprised. You see, to follow behind and learn the thoughts of God, to try in a very limited, small, dim, shallow way, to think His thoughts, to understand His ways, His methods, that's what we are told to aspire to. How good a job are we going to do? Way down here. But that's what we're supposed to try to do. Think the thoughts of God in our little, meager way. He tells us, that our death is for our sakes. And he also tells us that the death of animals then, that tells us that if our death is for our sake, then it must be so that the death of animals is for their sakes. You ever wonder why they die? I asked that a while back. Why did animals die? For their sakes. He's limiting the time for them. They're not going to reject Christ. It is a horrible understanding to call the animals dumb. They will not reject their creator. They believe him. We are the ones that reject. He calls us darkened and debased. 
give us over to a darkened, abased mind. We see the limit, this limit to our time in this dark, sinful world. And our exposure to evil is far shorter than those of the pre-flood era. What does that mean? We only get 90 years in the muck. They had 900 years in the muck. Why are we reduced to 90? Is that good or bad? Why were they in a position uh, in a sinful, in a horrifying world? They're in a horrifying world. 900 years. How many dead people did they see in 900 years? I mean, it's unbelievable what they witnessed. Why the difference? Again, we see the limit to our time in this, this dark, sinful world, our exposure to, to evil. We understand that it is far shorter than it was in the pre-flood. And it's the same for the animals. Why is that to be the case? Again, animals never choose to be in sin. Humanity chooses that. Animals will not choose that. Anyway, think of these things, and we'll continue in a couple of weeks and figure them all out.